everyone. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on? Man, another day in paradise because we're back, baby. Let's go. Give the people what they want. It is another day, and we are recording this in the middle of the one of the best meets in the world, which is the Olympic trials. So we're going to touch on that a little bit during this podcast. By the time you hear it, the trials will be over, but we're going to kind of use that as a segue into this week's topic. But before we get into this week's topic, you know what's coming. It's our push for our scholar program, which is the one-stop shop to getting better. Right now, we are going through our Canovathon, which is outlining everything Canova. Thanks to the generous, you know, I'll call it donation by Renato. We have training plans and presentations of his. We just went through actually this last week. It was the the weekly theme was how to set a world record. Yeah. <laughs> and we and we dove into one of his athletes who set a world record at the half marathon, went in her week by week training leading up all the way through the season to get there. You know, where else are you going to see the training and a presentation by Canova on how to set a world record? And that's what I love about Canova, man. He's a coach's coach. He just shares it all out there. It's it's nothing special. It's 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 innovative. It's intelligent, but it is at the end of the day just focused hard work. And that's the thing. You can know the principles behind training, but unless you actually commit to it and do the work day in, day out, you can't reap the benefits. So yeah, definitely I mean, it makes you a better coach. It's made me and Steve a better coach. I think Canova was a huge influence on us when we were young, and we thankfully had access to him. And now we're just giving that back to our scholars. So if you haven't signed up, please sign up. You're missing out. All right. So let's dive into this week's topic, which is big meat readiness. Mm. As I said, it's timely with the Olympic trials, but what we're going to go through is kind of the psychology, the physical part, just what you need to do to get ready to perform at the highest level, because it's a different skill set. It's a different, you know, experience than your traditional head down to the track, you know, try and run as fast as you can, or even on the professional side. Go get in line in the paced meet, see what you can do. It's a different, it's a different beast entirely. And it, this applies to to also the roads, right? To um, marathons that are more competitive, where maybe the time isn't going to be the driving narrative, like at a New York or a Boston or something like that, where the course itself um, is a challenge, or NCA cross country or uh, world cross country, like. Those are big meets and there's different rules of engagement. And you see this all the time. People you didn't expect to fare well, rise and are brilliantly um, successful. And people you thought, oh, hands down, they're going to succeed. No question about it. Unfortunately, you see um, wilt in that face of that pressure. And it's a lot different, um, you know, preparations, more holistic. I think that's what Steve and I are going to try to touch on are the key points of that holistic training and preparation that goes into being ready to compete at that level versus say just getting someone physically fit enough to go run a fast time trial at a perfectly set up um, situation. 
So, yeah, I, I think the holistic is the key here. And what I would say is this, is that in big meets, and whether this is your Olympic trials or even your state high school meet, right, um, the predictability goes out the window a little bit. The certainty goes out the window. Because normally when you enter a race, you have a good idea on how it's going to unfold if you've been racing long enough, right? If I show up to the Portland Track Festival, I look at my heat, I look at the pacers, I can roughly go, okay, we're going to go out at this pace. These people are probably going to go with it. These people over here, uh, you know, they're more pretenders than contenders. I need to make sure that I don't get stuck behind them. You know how it's going to play out. And your only job then is to execute like your strategy and be in control of what you're doing based on, you know, what, how you know the race is likely to go. When we get to these big meets, that gets thrown out the window, not only because there's no rabbits, right? But because the pressure isn't intensified, because now you have these standards as well to get on the team and people who make the final and don't have a standard might try and, you know, do something out of the ordinary. And you also have people who are, I, I'd call it low risk, high reward, and they're going to take their shot, Right. And I, I think one of the perfect examples, if you watch the Olympic trials, was the 800-meter final. And we broke this down, actually, in the scholar program. So if you're a scholar, you've seen this. And we won't go into the depth that we went in there. I think it was a 20-minute video on that one. But what was interesting is if you watch that race, okay, the uh, USC runner, uh, Jewett, took off, okay, and pressed every 200 a little bit more until he got to 600. And then the wheels started to come off a little bit, but he held on. And if you watch, there's this key moment, right, where he has a little bit of a gap. And then Donovan Brazier, about 350, tries to close that gap. And then Jewett puts in a little surge, and Brazier can't close that gap. Okay. And now you've got this point where, Donovan Brazier, world champion, et cetera, et cetera. And I've, you know, there's been reports of him dealing with injuries, but still world champion, all this stuff. He can't close that gap now. And he's in this uncertain place where this guy just ran 25-0 from 400 to 600, his fastest split of the race, and has a gap on Brazier. And Brazier starts to press where in normal meets, he doesn't press, Right. Because he's like, oh, I got this. No problem. I can close this down. But he presses. And then that's why Brazier runs a 31-second last 200 and is, 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 is kind of done. And I think that race in particular like shows the different you know, um, situation, both psychologically and physiologically, of these big meets. Because you have this athlete do it who has low risk, right? He's saying, I'm a collegian. I just got here. Like, yeah, I won the NCAA championship, but I'm going up against world champ, Olympic medalist, another guy who almost, you know, um, was a world championship medalist. And he took control and changed the di dynamics of the race away from, you know, um, what it probably traditionally has been. And I think it's important to note in that example, too, you know, you heard afterwards, like in a period of frustration, 
Donovan's saying, oh, I had no race plan. And that, to me, I think, is one of the key things to center around on um, big meat preparation is what we call the race plan or what I now and more call decision making. And so, you know, it, as Steve alluded to, right? Yeah. In those time trial meets, there are rules and engagement. It's the first 800 or the first half of the race is going to be at this pace, evenly ran with someone else um, worrying about the integrity of that pace lap after lap after lap, right? So that's why we have the rabbit. So you can offload that worry or that concern for the first half of that race or however long the rabbit's going. And then the uncertainty begins. Then the real competitiveness begins. People might have an agenda just to try to continue that pace to run a certain evenly split race in a time. Other people might be, um, you know, trying to accelerate the pace, kick, do all these other things. But there's the period of uncertainty is only very short window relative to the duration of the race. However, in a big meet, there are no rules in engagement. The goal of a big meet is to win. The goal of the big meet is placing, to beat other people, to be competitive. So there's only a couple ways, right, that meets are, or races are typically ran, whether they're 800 up to the marathon in those big meet um, championship competitive situations. So knowing those scenarios, you can then make scenario planning as I've, I think I've talked about in another podcast, where you have plans and decisions like, you know, if when statements, if this happens, or if then statements, if this happens, then I'm going to do this. If this happens, then I'm going to do that. If this happens, then I'm going to do this. And that's really important as an athlete and a coach is to prepare not only psychologically discussing it, but also physically um, on the track with workouts to kind of ready the athlete to have already experienced that type of um, situation so that when the situation arises, they're not freaked out by the novelty and un un unsure if they can endure or sustain if they respond um, how they told themselves or you discussed they would. So yeah, let's go over those kind of basic uh, scenarios, Steve, in big meat races about how they typically play out. Yeah, one thing that I want to point, I, I think that you said that is really important to kind of put a pin in is that reframing instead of race plan is its decision making. And this is the key because normally we don't have to make decisions for at least the first half of the race, right? But if you look at, I'm going to use that 800 again as an example. If you look at the 800, the first 200, Jewett is in the lead, Brazier is right you know, next to him, behind him. Hopple comes around at 200, gets ahead of Brazier, okay? And Jewett keeps it going while everyone else settles. And that's your first decision point because he gets a gap and there was a choice there. Do I close this gap? Do I not? Hopple was ahead on the turn and he chose not to. Maybe because he was like, hey, you know, I haven't raced much. I can tell this was really fast. I'm not going to put this effort in to get on it. Right. And Brazier had a had a decision point to to make at that point. Do I sit here? Do I close this and get on this train or not? 
in normal races, it's pretty simple. You don't have that point that early because you know what's going to happen. You know that this rabbit is supposed to come through in 51 seconds or whatever it, it has, and then he's going to step off. So if you don't go with this guy, it's okay because, you know, like maybe we're a little bit slower, but he's stepping off and I'm with the rest of my competitors. So this decision-making framing is really important because normally, again, it only starts to happen once the rabbit steps off or once the real racing begins. But in these big meat races, it happens early and often. And we've talked about the 800, but let's branch all the way to the other extreme, the marathon. In paced marathons, the decision-making is very simple. Do I go with you know, this pace group or do I not? In non-paced you know, race marathons, what happens? You have to constantly be psychologically thinking, okay, do I go with this break? Do I not? Do I run my own race? Do I tuck in here? Right? And we can all give examples of athletes who did it in, in different ways. But that decision-making, thinking about it, that constant, okay, plus and minus, what move do I make? That costs time and energy, right? It's, you know, our, our brain runs on glucose, right? It costs, there's there's a reason why there's this whole, in, in the business world, there's this whole thing called decision fatigue, right? So if we apply that model to racing, I think you get a bit, a little bit better understanding of, okay, it's not just, okay, I have a race plan to do this. It's how am I going to efficiently and effectively make decisions? And that's the difference between, you know, a competitive mindset versus a participatory mindset, right? And that's what we see a lot in these time trials is just people are participating, participating to kind of get a reward of a qualifying time or personal best and a, a sexy time and my you know people often go oh yeah they're a, a 340 1500 meter guy or they're a 15 you know 05 5k woman and i go well how many times have they done that and like once well once is just once i mean anyone can do something once and have it be magical it's what matters is can you repeat that outcome over and over and over again in different scenarios, through different ways, right? How many different ways can you run 340 for 1500? There's a lot. How many different ways can you, um, you know, run that 1505 for 5K? So what we end up doing, though, is we attach a certain expectation that because someone did something once in a season or their personal best of all time, two, three, four years ago, that then means that that's who they are. That's their level. It's like your height. It's like doesn't change. It's very malleable um, because context matters and also the process of how it happened matters. You know, did they run 340 in a time trial race at like Azusa Pacific and get ninth? Well, then why are you hanging their hat on saying, oh, this ninth place person is going to go to a big meet and then all of a sudden figure out how to compete for the win or the podium. Very rarely does that happen, right? And this is why racing and the practice of the skill of racing in smaller meets, all, you know, meets of all different shapes and sizes is so vital because it gives you real-time reps in arenas 
where it's unpredictable. Like that's why like say dual meets matter. That's why, you know, up or down distances matter without kind of having a rabbit, right? We've gone to this culture where it's time narrative that's driven and then perpetuated so frequently on media and social media. And that's the only thing that matters, right? Versus it's actually, you get to the big meets and you see who the competitors are and you see this time and time again. And, you know, people are asking me, like say about the women's 5k, you know, who I thought was, you know, make the team or be in contention to make the team. And it wouldn't be who you thought, right? It's these women who I've been watching for years. You're like, okay, who's the competitor? Who are, who, who have the competitive, um, itch in, in this field. Those are the people you put your money on, not the person who ran under 15 once in a perfect twilight scenario and setting. I want to see the people who are like constantly have a hunger to win and are putting themselves in situations to win, whether that's low key meat, big meat, or in between meat. And that's also too, where you can infuse that in a workout scenario as well, right? And, you know, whether you create a fictitious situation where you're saying, okay, hey, we're going to have this rep, this 400 be the last 400 of the race, and you're going up against so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And, you know, here's what you, here's what your race plan will be or your race scenario or your decision-making will be like, you know, go out hard, stay with them, but always, always, always stay, stay close in contact. And then at 150 to go or 200 to go, just, you know, as Steve would say, run to the barn, just let it all out. Right. And so in those types of uh, practice situations, you're not saying run this split for this rep. You're saying process wise, emotionally connect with the task, which is a quarter of 400 meters at a high intensity at near max or maximum ability, but emotionally connect in this way, because that's really what a lot of decision makings too in those big meat scenarios is going to be, is that emotional connection to what you're doing versus this um, more analytical connection to what you're doing when you're looking at the clock and then saying, Oh, what's my time going to be? Because that's what makes the Olympic trials and the Olympics in the world championships and sometimes the USA championships so fun to watch is the the pure emotion that's on display of the athletes competing um, versus the analytical athletes tend not to fare well because they're always just thinking in numbers rather than um, thinking in emotional energy. So let's, let's, let's break this down because I think that emotional energy can go both positive and negative, right? Oh, without doubt. And we've seen it. Yep. So, it, you know, I think this is a good point because I think if you think of it here, you know, I like to think of it as either you get this like positive emotional building or you get this negative emotional like spiral. Yeah. I right? mean, they're both cycles. One's virtuous, one's yeah. vicious. It, it, exactly. And that's, you know, in, in what often happens is we can like nudge ourselves in one or other ways of those directions based on the feedback we're getting in a race. And what often happens is um, in a high pressure situation like Olympic trials or for high school kids, a state meet, 
um, small things can can quickly turn into avalanches, right? So a small gap in a race or a surge by someone else that feels a little too hard to cover can quickly spiral negatively. And then you're in this kind of like freak out stage, negative, vicious cycle emotionally. And then you're, 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 you're done, right? Your energy is spent. It's all that, that stuff. And I think if, okay. And the opposite thing is sometimes you see this, this positive, you know, building where athletes are gaining momentum almost as, as, as the race unfolds. And I think, again, you can nudge yourself in either direction. And I think what competitors do really well is they're able to calm themselves or keep an even keel when things could negatively spiral and then take advantage or amplify that positive like spiraling or, or building. And the example of this, um, well, the, the scenario I would, I would use to illustrate this is pretty straightforward. And that's in our normal time trial or our regular meets, right? We know what to expect. We know where we should be. So small things don't really get in our way that much. But in the Olympic trials, Again, if we fall off a pack a little bit, if we have five people ahead of us, then all of a sudden we jump straight to this negative, vicious freakout. What competitors do really well is they're able to calm themselves regardless. And I think in the steeple, you saw this you know, very well with uh, Emma Coburn, actually, who for the first half of the race was sitting there stuck, you know, in a very bunched steeple pack on the inside. And for people who have never run the steeple or coached the steeple, being in a very packed race, even if you're the best one in there, is can be incredibly nerve-wracking, right? Because you can't see the hurdle coming up. You can't predict if someone's going to clip it. It's a jumbled pack, and it can it can freak people out. And And often what happens is people... When you're stuck in that environment, you know, they eventually crater because they're spending so much mental nervous energy uh, worrying about their positioning and whether they can get over the hurdle and see it clearly and see the water jump clearly and all that stuff. But Coburn did a great job of just staying calm, waiting for a space. And then once her space opened, like taking charge and taking control. Yeah, that um, coolness under pressure, right? That's a thing we all seek to infuse athletes with and the best competitors and athletes have. And it's not just something that, you know, you're born with or not. It is conditioned, it is trained. And so remembering, like, I remember when my basketball coach, when I was in high school, he goes, basketball is a game of spurts. It's, you know, someone gets hot, they go on a run, you know, you're up. 10 points or you're down 20, you know, 12 points, but it, it seesaws back and forth like that. And that's what makes basketball so fun and entertaining is the, the swings of like, um, you know, spurts that we see and people get a hot hand for a, a little while, but then it subsides. And how many times have we seen a basketball game where you're like, Oh, this team's up 20 points in the third quarter and you think they're just going to win. And then the other team rallies back and actually becomes the victor or pushes the overtime. Same situation here. 
in running. As long as you're not physiologically over your head, as long as you're not running beyond your current um, physiological limits to keep a pace, when you're in those slow paces and you're like, especially in rounds or early going, trying to conserve energy, but also to being around athletes of potentially lesser caliber, a lot can go wrong in terms of you can get clipped and fall down. Um, you can get pushed, you can shoved like, you know, there's risk to that. Right. So when you're in that scenario, um, you know, a good way to practice that going into it is with athletes is having a, you know, a, a group run at a certain, um, tempo together in a really, really, really bunched up, um, s- situation where it's like, no, get closer than you want to be to each other because you're all training partners and friends and nice, but the instruction should be no, make it like a little bit too close for comfort because that's always the thing I think, um, you know, we in America and Northern or North Americans and even some Europeans are very good at is giving kind of that, that bubble and that space. But then when I've had athletes compete against an international field with especially, um, you know, uh, East Africans, there's no space. It's the, you're right there next to them. Like, why are you so close to me? Because their concept of spacing and distance and what's socially acceptable is different than ours. Like, Um, you know, or if in some, uh, like when you go to some oceanic countries too, like there's just so many people that everyone's in each other's quote unquote space where like Northerners or Europeans or Americans would be like, well, well, we need a a bigger bubble. But to them, because the density of population is so high from a day-to-day basis, like if you drive around in India or something, everyone's super close in, uh, makes you feel uncomfortable as an, as an American or European, same situation internationally. So you got to be ready for that because I've had athletes who have gone to like say world cross and just been like so tightly bunched around um, international athletes and it just freaked them out. They were like thinking about that versus actually focusing and like competing um, because, you know, it was not something they were expecting and it kind of threw off their center. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's a, a good point. And that's where, again, practicing. So if we, we break, it, break this down, it's being comfortable in these different situations, right? In different situations where we're often not in because whether it's college or professional where you're trying to hit a time, what often happens is you get strung out, you find your space, you've, you you find your place and you just sit there and hang on and see what you can do. Right. Um, but it's a different ball ball game being comfortable in a pack. And you often see this. If you watch really good high schoolers who have been really good for a long time. So often on the female side where they're great from freshman to, you know, their senior in high school, and then they go into college. They're so used to having no one around them and not being pressed and not having a pack to deal with. And often they struggle that first year or two, but not because, you know, physically they're any different or their fitness isn't there or anything like that, but because it's a different feeling in ball game when you're in control of everything up front, handling everything versus when you're in pack or pressed or all this other stuff, you've got to get that comfort level when you're you're in there and you can see this you know you see this energy um 
in the prelims even of uh, of the trials. So I suggest you know go back and watch the either men's or women's 5K trials, you know prelims for example. And what happens is you know at first everyone's just like oh, I'll stay here, I'll sit around, sit around, sit around because no one wants to really push a 5K prelim that much except for Abby D'Agostino or Abby Cooper in that one race, but no one really wants to push a, a 5K prelim. But what happens is the race gets going as you get through six, seven laps. You can almost see it. People are getting a little anxious, right? And you start seeing this pack, you know, move out to where you have people running three wide, four wide, sometimes five wide. And you're just, you know, you can tell the nervous energy of like, oh, I'm going to pull the trigger. I need to go. This is this is that. And that's the difference right there. It's the calm versus that that building nerve of like, oh, this isn't comfortable anymore. Or like, I need to make a move or I need to get out of this. And granted, that's a prelim, but you see the same thing in other races when you have big packs is some people are very comfortable with it. Some people are not. But thankfully, as John pointed out, this is a trainable, you know, capacity. You need to train it, right? And in the steeplechase, I'll just give an example with my steeple runners. A lot of times what I have I have them do is practice, you know, going over barriers um, or going over hurdles with everybody in the group, right? And sometimes everybody in the group plus one or two people who can't steeple worth crap. But the reason you do that is to get them used to uh, that situation and scenario, because especially in the steeple, it's a heck of a lot easier to steeple by yourself when you have a clear path to the barrier Mm -hmm. versus when you have chaos. Mm -hmm. And two, it's just also, you know, practicing things and then knowing specifically what's a trigger for your athlete. So every athlete I work with has different triggers and some triggers are virtuous triggers and some are vicious triggers, right? Um, let's say, um, you know, I'll give a specific example. Like Michaela Fricker was, we were training in 2016 to give her a shot to make the Olympic team in the 800 and at that time before the special shoe phenomena, it was, you know, ballparked about two flat, having to run two flat, three out of four days in a row. And this is something Steve and I will, will, let's talk about next. The difference of the competitiveness of the rounds and the ability to bounce back, quote unquote, or be able to not be hyper-stressed between rounds is another key element to um, good big big meat racing on the track. Um, But for Michaela, a trigger ended up being her... um, value or perceived value or perceived hierarchical standing comparative to an Ajay Wilson. So that season, Michaela ran like 201, I don't know, six, seven, eight times, like just over and over and over again, but winning, right? Winning like Adrian Martinez, you know, or second, like competing, right? And she's all, she was always a very competitive athlete. You know, she got fourth at USA Indoors that, um, that year in 2016. So she, you know, she had the juice, as we say, the the moxie, but she easily won or advanced out of her prelim and then her semi. She was looking great. Physically, she was ready to go. We had done the right training. Um, but then with 220 meters to go, Ajay Wilson comes streaking by and I could see Michaela freak out. And she just had this, oh, I don't know if I can compete with Ajay moment. 
And it lasted, this little pity party, lasted for about 60 meters until about 140 to go. And she pulled herself out of it and, you know, pulled her head out of her ass and then like started going again. But it was too late because in that semi, the gap in the ground had already been given for with that 60 second, we're talking like eight seconds, right? Pity party she had. And she couldn't rally to make the final. I think she was either the first or second person out of the final. And then afterwards, she was livid and pissed and frustrated at herself for having been triggered, not being ready for it, and giving away an opportunity um, that she felt. And then she went on to run like essentially 201 again five weeks in a row at summer um, you know, meets that were happening in uh, stateside. So it wasn't a lack of fitness. It wasn't a lack of physical preparation. It was just I didn't know personally that Ajay was a trigger for her until after debriefing with her and talking about it. And then we realized there was a couple people in the U.S. distance running scene that for her were a li- on a pedestal a little bit above her in her mindset and that she needed to overcome to advance and sustain her overall competitiveness. And so then, you know, training afterwards was about creating visualizations and um, scenarios where we pretended either a guy, um, you know, that would hop in or another um, female that we had in the training group at the time, you know, with a head start was that person so that she could get more familiarity and reps with um, competing against them in her mind and not being like, oh my goodness, you're like three seconds faster than me. I don't, uh, you know, and start to freak out. Yeah, you know, all all it is is really it's exposure therapy. It, yes, it is exposure therapy. Correct. <laughs> and, and for those who don't know, exposure therapy is again long research, long use therapy. But the example would be if you're scared of heights. Well, what do you do? You go expose yourself to a moderate height, which still scares you, and then sit there and be like, I'm okay. Like, I'm not going to fall. I'm all right. And you increase that exposure and that experience while while calming yourself down or, you know, having support around you until eventually your body and brain say, okay, we don't need to send this signal of, you know, I'm afraid of heights all all the time, right? That's all, all it is. And that's what we're trying to do psychologically when we look at these things, because we all have different triggers. We all have these different triggers that can send us spiraling, as we said, in this negative emotional state and send us, uh, quote unquote, off the cliff in terms of of racing. So it's like, I, I love that example. And the other thing I'd say here is that this is a great example of why when you use visualization or other, some other psychological, you know, uh, coping strategy like that, you don't just imagine, hey, here's me succeeding. Here's the race going perfectly. Here's me winning the race and coming through. No, you have to prepare yourself, you know, for the negative. You have to prepare yourself, visualize, okay, here's what happens. I am boxed. I can't get out. Here's how I'm feeling because of that. Here's how I'm going to deal with it. And that's what we talk about when we talk about decision-making at the beginning. And it's not just, oh, here's my race plan. I'm going to run this this splits and this, this, this. It's what are you going to do 
during those moments when you have to make that decision and have you rehearsed or planned, you know, so that you're a little bit inoculated to that. So you don't freak out when, you know, maybe it doesn't go according to the race plan, but it goes in a different direction. Or when you don't feel as good or as fresh or, you know, as resilient as you had hoped or anticipated or thought you would feel. And I think that's too something, you know, we also have to put a pin in is a lot of athletes and coaches go, oh, well, we're going to taper you and you're going to feel great. You're going to feel fresh. You're going to feel good. And this concept of like, okay, in order to perform well, I have to feel good. And, you know, it should feel easy and not crazy challenging. And that's true to a certain point, but also not true at all. Because whenever you're racing at your highest level or a high level in a big meet, it doesn't feel good. But if you've done the training to sustain that force output and that speed and that pace, despite in a uh, position of discomfort, then you'll be okay. So that myth of like, oh, we got to feel fresh and good is one that, you know, you need to like constantly through exposure therapy and also discussion, remind the athlete, like you may not feel great, but you can still do this because you've done the training. You, how many times have you gone to the hurt locker, right? That was talking to Alan Webb who just ran his first marathon, you know, and he was like, yeah, that was really tough. And I go, but Alan, your talent always was that you could go to the hurt locker, be in a, a place of a lot of fatigue and discomfort and tolerate it enough to keep going at a certain, um, you know, trained speed. And that's, I think, one of the secrets that we forget as athletes and coaches who, ta- who, when we focus on the time trial aspect is, yeah, you want to feel good in the time trial thing, because again, you want to have a lot of energy and evenly pace that energy out throughout the time trial by running an even-ish type pace to hit a time. But in a race, you might feel out like absolute crud or your legs or you just feel shot or emotionally you're just like, um, you know, a little bit shaky. So the, the key there is to have quickly a reminder in place for the athlete of what do I want? Why do I want it? How bad do I want it? The how bad do I want it That's the key part, right? A lot of us know what we want and why we want it. But what's the price you're willing to pay to get what you want? Because there's always going to be something in your way. And in this situation, someone in your way. There's going to be obstacles to getting what you want. And if you're not ready and don't have, um, you know, already that awareness of the price that you're going to pay to get what you want, then when that, you know, when the toll comes, so to speak, or when the the bill is due and you're not sure if it's worth it, you probably won't pay it. But if it's really, really worth it to you and you expected it to be this difficult and you're like, yeah, I want it this bad. I'm willing to be in a place of discomfort and suffering this much for this long because I really, really want this more than anything you're probably going to fare very well versus someone who might have a little bit of a weaker will or less clarity about what they want, why they want it and how much they want it. Yeah. You know, it's the whole uh, fatigue thing and that, you know, your motivational intensity 
almost helps you override or like loosen the strings because your your brain's kind of like all right this is super important so like don't shut them down yet it's it's the whole like you're a mother and your kid is in danger so you can do crazy superhuman things you know and that example is a little extreme but it's the it's the same thing here in the sense that we can override that uh, that fatigue a little bit if our motivational intensity um, is high enough. So, you know, that's a, that's a great point here. And I think, again, in this case, it's easy to remember, oh, this is Olympic trials, this is, or like, this is the state meet or the big meet. Of course, I want to do it. Of course, I want this stuff. But the key is bringing the motivational intensity without having that amplify the pressure um, as well, because these work almost like a seesaw here, because sometimes what happens is people think, oh, this is it. Um, uh, you know, I want this really bad. And what they're doing is at the same time, increasing the pressure that they feel because it's like, oh, this is big. And what happens is they crater it. So it's how do you increase the motivational intensity? Well, keeping that pressure or that that per, that pressure in perspective so that it doesn't overwhelm. Right. It's that being in that that's the hard part. The the pre race nervous energy or jitters. Right. It's when you are sympathetic in that sympathetic state too soon. That fight or flight that's stressed out, and then you're just living in that for, you know, however many hours or days. Then you get to the racing crucible and you're emotionally drained, and you just you have no energy because you've you know exhausted through just being nervous, uh, too nervous. So what are some parasympathetic or rest and digest, you know, strategies you can do? Well, one is get away from the environment or the circumstance that is the race. So like if you're in Eugene, you know, what we did in 2016 with the athletes I had the trials is we stay a little bit outside of Eugene, away from all the bells and whistles and noise and everything going on you know, just kind of on the outskirts of Eugene, where it was just another day, right? And people could just be at the Airbnb house we had written and just chill out. You know, other things you can do is um, like take people on, you know, a fun activity that's uh, like going to the movies or, you know, as Mike Smith famously did with NEU kids, go play laser tag, just something that departs them from the pressure of the crucible that they're about to enter into. You know, those those things are really important. Another thing that's been shown is have a really big meal the night before. Like, so if you have a big meal and, you know, I was with Daniel Herrera and he was uh, talking about this. He goes, yeah, when I was at Drake Relays, um, you know, I go with the throwers and the throwers, you know, they compete in the evening, but they have a big old breakfast. And he's like, it's almost like they're all high because they're just like, you know, all the blood is going to their stomach. So they're just like really relaxed because they're like, well, I can't exert any energy. So I have this humongous meal and then I just immediately go into rest and digest. And so you can do that like the night before to help you go to sleep, just have a big old meal. And that's why like the big, all you can eat pasta dinners and things do help. They give you the caloric and macronutrients you need for the next day. But also too, it's just, you know, you have a big meal. It's like, I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> so, I mean, those are just fun little strategies that you can put in place to create the situation of, you know, relaxation or conservation 
versus being so wound up and just, you know, wound up like a screw because I've had that two athletes want it so much and they obsess about it for days and days and days. And then by the time they get to the, um, the racing environment, they, they're just, they're impotent, right? They just, they, they got nothing. And and here's what I would say, and this is a great point you brought up, is that the stress response system is more complicated than we give it credit. It's all stress and response, but what I would say is what you're looking for, the positive side, is that sympathetic nervous system works really well when it gets turned up and then it gets turned down, you know? It's like that's where that adrenaline spike and, you know, performing works really well where it doesn't work well is when it gets turned up and then it lingers and it just sticks around and for days and days and days and the biology works with this because again if you look at adrenaline the time course of that generally is pretty quick and then return to normal the time course of cortisol is sustained long hours to days right and what you're trying to do is conserve yourself for that. We need that hit of good adrenaline. We need it to propel us, but we don't need this lingering state. And I'm in full agreement. I remember the first uh, NCAA track meet Brian Barraza made. We went to like one of those, um, you know, puzzle solving rooms where they lock you in and you got to figure it out like the night before. Why? Because we were stuck that. We were stuck, you know, um, at the meet for days with nothing to do. And I'm like, all right, we got to get us ourselves out of this. The first cross country championship he went to, my assistant coach brought, uh, at the time, I think a PS4 to play with Brian and his whole job. Like I didn't tell him this, but he figured this out was like, Hey, keep this kid entertained. (laughs) Well, (laughs) until we get closer, right? Because if you don't, like you sit there, you ruminate on it, you freak out about it, et cetera. And the same thing happens at the trials. And that's why I think, you know, if you see a, a, a lot of the successful athletes at the trials, it almost becomes they they bring their support system with them, whether that's their family, their coaches, their friends or what have you. And a lot of times that's to keep things grounded and um, OK and not having this days long kind of stress response that is it uh, that ultimately shuts you down yeah that's really important steve um i'm glad you said that your support system is really key to have those um, people who you identify as champions of you in your corner during these kind of stressful moments of performance because going and performing has a lot of stress and we often talk about the training stress the physiological stress but the psychological stress is super um key but it's not quantifiable, right? It's qualitative. So because it's subjective, you need to have as much um, normalcy or good vibes, so to speak, as possible. And so that can be, um, you know, you see this a lot, like athletes bring down like their physios, their favorite physios. And some of the best physios aren't the most, most technically sound physios who just know the human anatomy inside and out. They're also People have been there themselves or been there enough and kind of talk to them. Like that's what we did in 2016 um, was I brought down our preferred physio and she's great. Like she doesn't go really hard. She doesn't like beat you up. Um, You know, she's not out. She understands like she's been around elite runners a long time 
And so she was more of a, an emotional confidant and um, soother of their energy just as much as like kind of just giving the, that flush um, rub down, right? And there's something to be said for having like familiar hands, you know, or, for, or a familiar face around you versus, yeah, you can go to the trials and a lot of athletes who get there like at first are like, oh, this is so cool. Like, you know, USATF employs all these different physios to like, you know, kind of give you some treatment if you want immediately after or before. And, you know, that's great. But, you know, they're, and they're great people. They're awesome. Like Roger White's one of like the best people on the planet, but, you know, they may not be familiar people. And that new, uh, that newness, that novelty that, Hey, I've never been here before. That's a stress too. So like, if you know what's your, where your big race or big need is, that's why it's wise if you can go do an invitational or go do a workout or go visit there, right? Like how many times do you hear like um, athletes go and run either easy or long runs or some type of workouts on the Boston Marathon course or the New York City Marathon course, right? Because it's important that they get comfortable with that scenario versus I've never been to Boston. It's my first time ever and I go run it. And oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting this because it was just so much stimulus, but familiarity lowers that stimulus profile. And that's something we're trying to harness is the stimulation being reserved for when the gun goes off and performance. And then immediately, like you said, pop and drop pops up and then cross that finish line and it drops if you're in like kind of the round scenario. And that's, I think something important to speak to is the density of competition you have and not only physically preparing for that density of high octane competition through rounds, but also the density of that high octane stimulus through rounds is something we often see athletes ill prepared for. Like they look great the first round or look and the second round, but then they get to the final and it's just like, boop, they ran out of, you know, spunk or even they get through the first round and they get to the semi and boop, they just all of a sudden hundred meters to go, 200 meters to go. They just didn't have the spunk anymore. And that's both, physical and psychological, why that happens. Yeah, you know, as, as I think about everything we've talked about, I really think it, it's understanding and managing these aspects, whether that's like that adrenaline, that stress, or that energy is like, how can you effectively manage that through the rounds, through the days, all of that good stuff uh, without it setting you off? And I think, again, you know, the point of this podcast is that it is all to a degree teachable and trainable. It's not like these people were born with nerves of steel. Right. You know, yes, it's easy to think that that's the easy narrative, but it's not. It It's not. And you see, and, you know, I'll give you the example is the military spends, you know, millions upon millions to train these exact skills, you know. Um, it's why they put them through some extreme training and, and stuff like that. And to a large degree, you know, it works, you know, not perfectly on everybody, but if it didn't work, we'd have a military that would freak out whenever gunshots occurred in battle and they were in this, you know, this fog of war, but like they spent so much time training them so that they're adaptable and can respond and make the right decision making. And there's even, you know, the famous John Boyd, like OODA loop. Yep, the OODA loop. I which, was just going to say that. Yeah, which is like, why is that? It's this. It's the exact same thing we've we've talked about here, only designed for war and war and battle uh, initially. But it's the same, you know, um, you know, 
neuroscience psychological principle that applies to the sport of running. Yeah. And what the OODA loop is real quick, it's a four-step approach to decision-making, right? So it focuses on like filtering the available information, putting it in context, quickly making the most appropriate decision, decision decision-making, right? And then understanding that the changes can be made as more data becomes available. And it's a loop. And OODA stands for observe, orient, decide, act. And it's constantly going on just, you know, people in the military, like the reaction time and the decision making in this OODA loop can be like as quick as, you know, 220 milliseconds, like fast, because you have to decide based on the fire that's coming, what's happening, and then constantly be re-filtering through this. And so that ability to observe real quick and orient yourself, and then the decision immediately made with the with the immediate action is key. And you don't have time to like balance, oh yeah, well, if I do this, then, you know, this could be a potential outcome if I do this. Like, you know, that's what the old timers mean. Like you gotta go with your gut. Um, but putting this and codifying it is really key because, you know, a lot of times we talk about it in a race, um, like they, they, they knew they had to go, but they didn't act on it, right? So people get are really good at the first three, orient, observing, oriented, and deciding. But without the action, without that final step, you kind of lose the loop and then you lose the effectiveness. So you can, that's what I mean. We mean by you have to be more emotional, which is you have to take action based off those first three principles in the OODA loop versus being more analytical, where then you're kind of quote unquote thinking too much. And you hear that all the time, oh, I was thinking too much versus actually putting it into action. 100%. Agreed. So, all right. Let's tie all this together somehow. Uh, Let's talk about training real fast because it is, you know, technically a running podcast, Steve. And I think that will help tie it all in. Um, So for me, the training comes down to championship or big meat to density, right? And this is whatever, however we want to find density. So in Canova's world, we are extending the amount of time you are going at your pace without interruption. And that creates density of that specific situation. Also too, we're creating density through repeat bouts and exposure to the specific paces you're running. So for you know, a miler or even a fifth or even 800 meter runner, what I often do leading into championship or big meets is the workout density on a day-to-day basis becomes a little bit higher. Now the volume is not crazy And what this would look like would be, let's say the miler or, or the 800 meter runner would run, um, you know, four times 400 meters at slightly faster than 800 meter pace one day. And then the next day they're going to run six or eight times 200 meters, kind of the same intensity, right? So we're going on back-to-back days. Why? Well, the Olympic trials, you have rounds and semis back-to-back days. Then you get a break, you know, so an easy day, shakeout day. And then we're going to come back and we're going to run something like 600 meters real fast with maybe 200 or 300 meter float. 100 meters real fast finishing kick, right? So what I'm trying to do is physiologically and psychologically set them up to understand like 
you got to be able, the body has to be able to produce this force at this specific speed within this really dense period. And that's the week's worth of workouts, right? That's it. Boom. And then the other four days are just rest and digest, like recovery oriented, right? Versus if I just stay with the, uh, the traditional pattern of training, one day, two days recovery, one day, two days recovery, whatever, you're not really preparing them to get up and go again. And when do we do this? Well, probably about a month out before that big meet. You know, we might do do it once or do it twice and then, um, you know, kind of freshen up or rest up and taper. So what we're doing in that regards is we're trying to create a really specific scenario of training of what they're doing from a time-based and intensity-based standpoint. So the amount of time they're really going to run their race, 15 minutes if it's a 5K runner, something of that nature, um, you know, but then also understand, hey, well, we got these many days in between to help the body understand, hey, you got to be resilient and bounce back and actually bring your best effort last, your best effort when you're most, quote unquote, physically fatigued in that little uh, mini dig cycle, as I like to call it. And then two, you have to also bring your best effort when you're also more emotionally fatigued, right? Not fresh going in. And that's really what we're talking about is physical and emotional density to really high octane stimuli is something that we have to think about preparing the athlete for about six to eight weeks in advance. Otherwise, just to roll the dice and hope they just show up being ready, ready to make it through those rounds um, is a fool's errand in my opinion because without the exposure therapy, and that's really all training is too, right? Exposure therapy. Um, the athlete's not going to feel nor be uh, confident and prepared in their ability to, you know, act when it matters. Yeah. And all I would add in there is that we're pretty similar. In the last six to eight weeks, I start adding in what I call uh, simulation workouts, where, where instead of trying to address the physiology, let's say, where we do, I don't know, the physiology workout would be, hey, I'm going to do uh, six by 800 at 208 with two minutes rest because this is the best physiological workout. When we're simulating, we shift things up, right? Instead of saying, hey, go run these at 208, we start saying, okay, what sort of race preparation am I getting ready for, right? What am I trying to do? Sometimes it's put them in a little bit of a hole and then figure out how to finish, right? Instead of doing six, eight hundreds um, at 208, maybe on the odd ones, we go out at, you know, 66 and then crank the second lap at 61, 62 or something like that, where you're saying, okay, I'm going to get used to finishing off of this or winding this up. You know, when Brian was getting ready for NCAAs, we did a lot of wind up stuff working on the clothes, but then we also knew, hey, his strategy was probably going to be to hammer it out. So we did a lot of workouts where he was solo, like by himself, like leading and pressing, especially in the middle. So, you know, maybe for mile repeats, instead of doing a four by mile at, I don't know, 425, maybe it's the first one you do at 430, the middle to you do at, you know, 415 to 420 and then see what you got at the end. So you're really pressing uh, when normally in a workout, you just be kind of settling or hanging on to just hit the splits. Press when you don't need to, to simulate, hey, 
this is what's going to happen. And then all sorts of psychological stuff as well, throwing packs in there, throwing, I've mentioned this, this in previous podcasts. I like to throw runners who aren't quite at the capability of maybe your top athlete, but give them more rest or give them a shorter rep so that it throws a wrinkle into that. So if, for instance, um, you know, I'll, I'll use the example of college kids. If someone's doing an 800, maybe I'll have them run the first 300 and then have, you know, a slightly slower person uh, jump in for the last 500, but they're fresher and running shorter so they can really push and hammer it out against that other person uh, to, again, create some of that psychological uh, scenario of where, you know, you're putting people in an uncertain situation. And the other thing that I like to do as well is do some relay style workouts where it just becomes natural. Their competitiveness becomes natural to start racing, right? To a degree, because we have relay teams and you balance out those relay teams where sometimes your best runner uh, has to do a lot of work bringing their team back, you know, which puts them in this competitive state, especially you know, in their last rep, let's say, where they're way more fatigued than they're, you know, someone who isn't as good, but they're having to figure out how to race. So I think different scenarios there, what way you go depends on, again, what are your race plans? What decision-making are you trying to ingrain and work on based on their trigger points? And if you can do that, then it all comes together and you've, you've, you've helped craft a robust athlete who is uh, a nerd to, you know, some of these, uh, you know, freak out moments or decision making points that might be pain points instead of positive. And yeah, that big meat prep, as you're seeing, is like Steve was talking about a balance, more of a balance and more of an emphasis on the psychophysiological approach, right? So it's understanding that we are combining or evolving both the mental and the bodily process. And so, you know, we talk a lot about kind of like, Physiology and psychology is separate and things you work on at different times. Okay, the workout's a, just a phys- physiological thing. And then we're going to do this mental imagery and rehearsal or discussion or goal setting, like this psychological thing. And then, you know, again, they're separate. And we think, okay, we've worked on them separately so that, yeah, magically on race day, they'll all come together to fruition and it's great. And that's really the key to like the performance period um, you know, or this performance prep period that immediately, um, you know, precedes the big meet is it's the wedding. It's the bringing together in practice, the psychophysiological so that it's one unitary whole because the body is holistic. It knows no bounds or separation. So what you perceive, whether it's threat or not threat is going to have biological and physiological endochromatic responses immediately. And so if you perceive this scenario situation to be harmful or threatful, and you've never practiced that kind of like mental and physical um, coming together of that scenario, you're going to fail and you're going to feel real hard. And you can see that a lot, say, in something like um, regional uh, track, for especially for the 10 kilometers, where usually regionals is in Fayetteville. Austin, very few people are acclimated to that kind of heat and humidity, right? So what I would do a lot when I was coaching at Portland State was I'd have my 10K regional women, 
be head to toe in May in, you know, just winter wear, right? So like working out in beanies and gloves and uh, uh, rain, Gore-Tex, right? Super uncomfortable, all runs, just no skin exposure, right? So like they get to the meat and they looked pretty pale because they didn't, weren't getting a lot of vitamin D um, as say like their, their buddies um, who didn't qualify to regionals, right? But physiologically and psychologically, they were well prepared to deal with the discomfort and grossness that is the heat and humidity for someone who's not in a, a very hot or humid environment in their prep. Now, if I was coaching it, where Steve, you know, uh, has coached at University of Houston and we're going to Austin, no big deal, just business as usual. Uh, Cause as we know, heat is poor man's uh, altitude. But for those people who come from more temperate climates like us, we had to get them ready from, from both that psychological and physiological perspective together. And that's really, I think one of the keys is understanding that how to, what that bridge that you have to cross and how to bridge that gap, because it, it expresses itself so many times at some, a big meet like the Olympic trials, state championships, uh, national championships. Because remember, everyone who is there is good. They had to qualify. They had to get through rounds or different layers of qualification to make it to that meet. But yet they're all good, but we see a big separation in the rounds and even the final about who's really good. And who's really prepared. And that's what we're trying to get at is it's this interesting thing where it's like, these are all people who put in the work, the dedication, the talent, the time, the energy. They've done the little things. They prioritize sleep, nutrition. They all have, you know, they might have like sports psychologists they co-see, nutritionists, physios. Like, and yet when push comes to shove in the final, there's a big gap, not only between like the podium but also like mid-pack and backpack in the final, you go, you scratch your head and you go, huh, why? They're all really good. <laughs> yep, exactly. You know, I mean, it's, it's, everyone's really good. It's just the, the small, you know, details on figuring it out and executing to fulfill their potential is what often separates them. And it's also why, you know, the people have done it for a long time and figured it out. The Emma Coburn, Allison Felix, if you watch them, their composure is just on point because they've practiced, developed this ability over the long haul so that they are robust and can handle, you know, different scenarios, different races, different tactics, and, you know, execute to, um, their potential or their fitness at that time. So um, hopefully, you know, you had a good time watching the trials and this kind of brings you back and reiterates some of the, um, the training that's needed to be done, but also that, you know, it's, it's this kind of psychological and physiological integration that can occur um, in training as, as a coach, you can implement this stuff. And, the other thing I'd, I'd like to end on here is that it's not just the Olympic trials. You know, we've highlighted that, but it is the NCAA championships. It's the conference meet. It's the state championship, right? For some, it's the district meet. The level differs, right? But the, the nuance of competing does not. 
and whatever level you're at, make sure, again, as John and I pointed out, your emphasis and training shifts a little bit towards the end to preparing for the demands of the event and preparing your athletes' decision-making loops to be able to handle, you know, whatever comes their way.